Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys episode 323. The Bowery Wizards and the Coney Island Kings. A history of tattooing in New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom Myers had to step away from the show for a few days here. And so we had to move our regularly scheduled show. Instead, I wanted to put something together for you today, celebrating a small business that's currently suffering under the lockdown caused by our current pandemic, the humble tattoo shop or tattoo parlor. Now, like barbershops and nail salons, all of New York's tattoo shops have been temporarily closed to stop the fight of the spread of the coronavirus. The future for these small business owners still remains very uncertain. What sets the tattoo shop apart even further is that it's almost always, until recently, been seen as the type of business on the wrong side of the tracks, serving sailors or soldiers in the first half of the 20th century and those within New York's counterculture in the second. For decades, the two centers of tattooing in New York, there's a third one, which I'll get to at the end of the show, but the two main ones have been Coney Island and the Bowery. Now, In the late 19th century, the Bowery was, of course, a street notoriously known for its saloons and dance halls. Several years later, it had become known as Skid Row, where homeless and out-of-work men stayed in shelters and flop houses. And then by the 1970s, the music venue CBGB also made the Bowery a destination for punk and rock and roll music. And it was here on the Bowery that the history of American tattoo artistry was made. Now, in the first part of today's show, I'll be presenting a recut edition of an episode of my old spinoff show, The First, from a couple years ago, about an extraordinary invention that was developed here on the Bowery that changed the entire industry. And, as with our last show on the history of early film, this show will also pay a visit to the labs of Thomas Edison. Then, for the newly recorded second part of the show here, I'll reveal another moment in New York tattoo history from the year 1961. In that year, it became illegal to give somebody a tattoo in the city, a restriction that would be on the books, believe it or not, for 36 years. 
That's right. During the birth of the New York punk movement, it was, quote, unlawful for any person to tattoo a human being. We'll get to that story, but first, we're going back exactly 150 years into the past to the very first tattoo parlor in New York City. Martin Hildebrandt was the most unusual artist in New York, and his handiwork could be seen throughout the city in the 1860s and 70s, adorning the most unusual canvases. The biceps of longshoremen at the fish market, sailors gallivanting through the whorehouses of Five Points, the young sailors in military training on Governor's Island, and curious performers out on the seashore of Coney Island. Hildebrandt crafted his body artwork from a small second-floor shop on a street that is no longer there, mere blocks from the crowded piers of the East River. In 1881, a reporter from the New York Tribune paid a visit to this place, passing through the door beneath a sign emblazoned with a vibrantly colored goddess of liberty and the words, Tattooing by Martin Hildebrandt. Inside, Hildebrandt's wife presented the reporter with a volume that must have seemed like a magician's book of spells, filled with 50 vividly rendered tattoo designs, including Masonic symbols, international flags, mermaids, ballerinas, burning hearts, lions, warships, and, for $3, the most expensive design, in the reporter's words, quote, a jauntily clad sailor embracing a short-skirted female. Hildebrandt then ran into the room and rushed to assure the reporter that these were just mere ideas, that he was capable of crafting any design the wearer would desire. Most customers wanted just one or two tattoos, commemorating a destination, or the death of a loved one, or the admiration of a woman. Although once he had tattooed a man from head to toe, his back adorned with the Virgin Mary and 33 angels, the crucifixion on his breast. Hildebrandt himself, a former sailor, was covered in tattoos over most of his body. He then showed the reporter the tools of his trade. Six needles set in wooden handles tied together next to several containers of India ink, black and vermilion. Depending on the artwork of choice, a procedure could take between 15 minutes and an hour and a half. He claimed that little to no blood was let during the process, although it could be painful and often excruciating. Said Hildebrandt, quote, The wounds are very slight and heal in a few days. The Burmese practice tattooing. They use a hollow instrument containing the India ink, something like one of them there fountain pens. Now, when the reporter left Hildebrandt's shop, a child ran up to him and exclaimed, Say, mister, what did you get put on your arm? A ship or your girl's name? Martin Hildebrandt's Atelier, as he called it, is the first documented tattoo shop in the United States. In that interview with the New York Tribune, he accidentally predicted the future of his craft. For the art of tattooing would change forever with the stroke of a pen. The art of the tattoo did not need the intervention of modern technology. It is one of the oldest artistic practices in human history, with evidence of ancient tattoo practices found in nearly every corner of the globe. 
Tattoos have served every conceivable purpose, markings of class or property, of religion or age. They are emblems of memory, badges of honor, or occasionally disgrace. Every culture, every race, every gender. Body art is older than published books, older than paintings and sculptures, and perhaps not surprisingly, is contemporaneous with the first appearance of written language. So then, how on earth did a young inventor named Thomas Edison, quite by accident, change the techniques of this ancient craft? The story actually begins with the man I introduced you to earlier, Martin Hildebrandt. Now, as he mentioned, the artist worked very near the bustling ports of New York City. In the 19th century, sailors were the primary customers for tattoo work, a tradition passed down from European vessels who traveled along trade routes, encountering extraordinary cultures and their different uses of body artwork. For this reason, tattoos were popular with military men and men of the sea. This wasn't just a fun thing that you did on board with your mates. Tattoos were a bit like a passport for many men, flamboyantly illustrating the places in the world they had sailed. And in these days before photo identification, tattoos often served a far grimmer purpose, used to identify men who had fallen overboard. Often when men signed up for sailing duty, their various tattoos were noted alongside their name and physical description. Tattoos became a critical part of many working men's identity in the mid-19th century. In New York, by the 1870s, the city's shipping infrastructure was so massive that it brought a large enough number of sailors, longshoremen, and other workmen to the city to support a dedicated tattoo artist like Hildebrandt. But Martin could only work so far with his six little needles, and with tattoo pieces becoming more sophisticated, other artists inspired by Hildebrandt began setting up tattoo shops in the general vicinity. These early parlors were certainly an unsanitary lot, set up in tenements from the waterfront to the notorious neighborhood of Five Points, with practitioners of lesser skill than Mr. Hildebrandt. In the 1880s, the tattooed form had become popularized at dime museums and boardwalk amusements for both men and women. Even the Greenwich Village bohemians dabbled in getting inked, in places on the body where such markings could be concealed, once in the company of proper society. In 1884, one popular tattoo artist named Edwin Thomas saw such thriving business that he opened two shops, one down on South Street for the sailors and the clerks, and one on the Bowery for ladies and professionals. His best-paying customers, Thomas claims, were Freemasons, receiving the familiar mark of the square and compass. Another artist named Samuel O'Reilly also opened a Bowery tattoo parlor in the 1880s. His shop was located in Chatham Square in the shadow of an elevated train which ran northward up the scandalous old street. O'Reilly was a former naval officer who became fascinated with the art of tattooing while in Japan. Given the tattoo's connection to the amusement world, even today, O'Reilly's shop sat next to a dime museum, an arcade of cheap thrills and filled with shocking entertainments. This being the Bowery of the 1880s, perhaps its most debauched period, O'Reilly looked for ways to crank out tattoos more quickly and efficiently. 
other tattoo artists, possibly even Hildebrand, had certainly struggled with producing better work in less taxing ways. But fortunately for O'Reilly, he rose to prominence in an era of ever greater mechanical invention. Fortunately for the Bowery tattooist, just a decade earlier, a man had come along with just such an invention. A man with no tattoos on his body. A man named Thomas Edison. Now, naturally, Edison has appeared on this show a great many times already, but usually at the point in his career where he's quite established. By the time of O'Reilly's tattoo parlor, Edison and his laboratory technicians will have already created the phonograph, the light bulb, and will have already lit up portions of the city just a few blocks south of O'Reilly using the world's first central power plant. But back in 1875, he was but a young inventor, with most of his creations connected to his original field of employment, telegraphy. He hadn't yet moved to Menlo Park, his laboratory where his experiments with the electric light bulb would help make him famous. He lived in Newark, New Jersey, and it was here in the summer of 1875 that Edison contrived a most unusual device. So he had been strictly developing innovations for the telegraph up to this point, but had observed that one of these inventions, a printing telegraph, which punched holes into a piece of paper, well, it actually left a marking on whatever was laying underneath that piece of paper. So what if this rapidly firing stylus was programmed in such a way that it could make a series of patterns? And thus did Edison create autographic printing or the electric pen. This extraordinary device, which he made with fellow inventor Charles Batchelor, was in no way like an ordinary pen that we have today. So really, it's a little like a sewing machine mixed with a dot matrix printer and that little game of spirograph that you used to play as a kid. So who wouldn't want that? Well, it turns out not that many people. First of all, it was very expensive. They rushed it out into the market in 1875 for $30 in today's money. That's about $65 to $70. A little bulky, bit messy, and it made a lot of noise. It was principally meant for company clerks who needed to make a lot of signatures. But in the end, it was never very practical. In 1876, Edison and Batchelor went to the Philadelphia World's Fair, where people loved it when they saw it. The inventors even won a bronze medal. Then on the ferry ride back to Newark, Batchelor lost the medal. Ultimately, this innovative device, this award-winning device, was quickly superseded by other types of stencil-making objects, most notably in 1887 with the invention of the mimeograph, based upon Edison's patent for autographic writing. Bankers and businessmen weren't seriously considering the electric pen as something very useful. But others looked at this strange device and wondered, with a slight adjustment, could it solve a very different problem? One of those people considering this was the man under the elevated train, the tattoo artist Samuel O'Reilly. How Edison's pen helped invent the modern tattoo industry after this. 
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. One curious detail about late 19th century tattoo artists is that they're often referred to as professors. Professors of the tattoo trade by the mid-1880s were working on more than sailors and longshoremen. Earlier in the show, I mentioned a tattoo artist named Edwin Thomas, or should I say Professor Edwin Thomas? Well, from an 1886 article in the New York Journal, quote, Many ladies have their names tattooed on the right arm just below the shoulder that it may remain invisible when they wear a ball dress. At the time of the disappearance of a local boy in town, for several years after, many mothers brought their children to Professor Thomas's office to have him tattoo their children's name on their arms in order that they might certainly be identified even if they should be lost for long years. Well, meanwhile, under the elevated tracks along the Bowery, another professor, the Professor Samuel O'Reilly, was attempting to improve his craft while keeping up with demand. At some point, Mr. O'Reilly received one of Edison's electric pens, an autographic press. It's very possible that other tattoo artists throughout the city had gotten the same inspiration as he did, especially those with exhausted hands and creaky joints, who would have looked at Edison's stencil pen and seen an immediate application in applying ink to the skin. In essence, a tattoo artist needs a delicate, precise, and steady hand, inserting a needle between the epidermis, or upper layer of the skin, and the dermis, or the second layer. It's there that the ink is administered and stays permanently. A mechanical solution would make this process more uniform and efficient while still allowing for the artistry of the tattooer. We don't know exactly when, in the late 1880s, that Samuel O'Reilly took the electric pen and refashioned it for the use in the application of tattoos upon the skin. But by 1891, O'Reilly had received a patent for this new device, the tattooing machine. 
This odd little device has three components, an adjustable needle or needles, depending on your preference, attached to a hollow handle, an ink reservoir linked to the needle within the handle, and an electromotor for maneuvering the needle between the skin and distributing the ink. This was not only an efficient tool, it was a marketing gimmick in itself. By the 1890s, the world was dreaming of a mechanical future. Imagine the novelty of receiving one of the very first tattoos from a patented machine. In 1898, the New York Sun took a gander at O'Reilly's tiny tattoo studio under the L. Quote, the professor's workshop is a single room about 6 by 12 feet. At the back, a small space is railed off, and here are the tattooing machines and inks. About the walls are Japanese screens from which several of the professor's tattoographs are taken. The dragon is a favorite design in this shop, which also turns out serpents, birds, religious studies, and various patriotic conceptions, as well as copies of any photograph or other picture. The professor copies freehand from the original, but there are also tracings of nearly a thousand subjects drawn on celluloid and gone over with a knife. These may be inked, like type, and a print made on the skin, which is then gone over with the tattooing machine. In the following decade, O'Reilly would take on several apprentices and even bring in a tattoo artist from Japan. He worked on ever more elaborate creations and even made house calls for celebrated sideshow stars and society folk who preferred not to brave the body bowery. O'Reilly's greatest legacy is introducing a mechanical device at the moment when tattoo parlors begin cropping up all over the country. Others began modifying the tattoo machine. One of these improvements was made by one of O'Reilly's very own apprentices and a man the New York Times called the Dean of Tattoo Artists, Charles Wagner. Wagner took over O'Reilly's shop when his mentor died in 1908 and kept the Chatham Square location well into the 1940s. He took his new and improved tattooing machine and began selling it to other artists across the country, expanding to become one of the biggest tattoo supply providers in the country. Believe it or not, Wagner's machine, with vertical coils inside of it, is the kind most often seen in tattoo parlors today. But he didn't stop there. With the rise of women's cosmetics in the 1920s, Wagner also specialized in a more permanent sort of makeup tattooed lips and eyebrows, so you never need to do your face again. In wartime, tattoos became a way of honoring a soldier's accomplishments and showing a little bit of individuality. Wagner even made a deal of money from soldiers and sailors attempting to cover up certain tattoos. In 1908, the U.S. Navy ordered that all indecent or obscene tattooing be removed or altered meaning that a newly tattooed sailor paid another visit to Wagner, who creatively covered up vulgar words or images. Charlie Wagner was a fixture of the Bowery all the way until his death in 1953. Incidentally, just a couple years later, the city would take down that elevated railroad. Sunshine, after many decades, finally pouring down on New York City's most notorious street.
Now, by the way, the Bowery, of course, wasn't the only place to get a decent tattoo in New York back at the turn of the 20th century. In Brooklyn, it may come as no surprise that the vicinity of the Brooklyn Navy Yard was also for a time a tattoo destination, Sand Street in particular, which runs through downtown Brooklyn towards the Navy Yard, and this street was once lined with tattoo parlors. But according to an article in the New York Daily News published in 1938, well, that article reveals that most of the tattoo parlors had been shuttered by then. Now, of course, there were also tattoo parlors down in Coney Island. And during the early 20th century, these places thrived alongside the other offerings of the Nickel Empire, so nicknamed as the fair for the subway, which took millions of people to the area, the fare was just five cents. By the 1950s, however, the number of tattoo parlors overall was dwindling in New York City. After the war, there were fewer soldiers and sailors coming through town getting tattoos. In 1958, a Bowery tattoo artist lamented to the press, quote, The tattoo business is falling off. I can remember a time I tattooed about 315 men off of one ship. Now you can't even get a sailor to come in. Those who remained on the Bowery, working as tattoo artists, tried to present more diverse offerings. From the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on February of 1950, quote, Bowery tattoo artists of 1950 scorn the hearts and flowers, battleship and dragon motifs of yesterday, preferring Kandinsky abstractions and Salvador Dali whimsies. When asked about a hearts and flowers tattoo, one tattoo master replied, quote, We don't need all that kind of stuff anymore. Only squares want hearts and flowers. You want Picasso, Matisse, Dolly? That's what we got. You want a girl with three profiles or a watch melting? Meanwhile, more negative connotations were being associated with the tattoo here in the 1950s. As mainstream society became more suburban and homogenous, a tattoo came to represent an outcast, a bad boy. Think leather jackets and motorcycles. You know, the fawns from Happy Days, except tougher. Regulators and moralists who considered tattooing a dangerous art that encouraged low behaviors had powerful tools to use in the 1950s. Psychology, for instance, was brought in to explain the motivations of tattoo lovers. Is a tattoo a symptom of neurosis, claimed one 1959 newspaper report? Studies of tattooed army and navy personnel indicate that the practice is more a symptom of immaturity, of wanting to be a social rebel. Some investigators hold that a tattoo is an adolescent modification of appearance comparable to wearing a zoot suit. Tattooing was also deemed a public health risk, erroneously linked to an outbreak of hepatitis B. The New York Department of Health ordered the closure of six tattoo parlors in New York after it was discovered that a Queens teenager who had died in October of 1959 of acute hepatitis happened to have gone to a Coney Island tattoo parlor two months previous. And then, on November 1st, 1961, New York City closed all the tattoo parlors and banned anyone from administering a tattoo upon another person. From the New York Times, quote, Since it is a practical impossibility 
of the department to supervise each tattooing establishment at all times to ensure proper sterilization, the board said in its resolution. A complete ban on tattooing, except for medical purposes, is the only feasible means of safeguarding the public against disease from this source. The article goes on to say, quote, Under the new amendment, tattooing of humans may be done only by persons licensed to practice medicine or osteopathy. The ban does not apply to the common practice of tattooing racehorses, valuable dogs, and livestock. Medical tattooing is used by plastic surgeons to conceal birthmarks, to disguise scars and the discolorations of such diseases as leprosy, and to remove other tattoos. Unquote. But if you think this ban was purely in the public interest, let me turn your attention to a case brought by a Coney Island tattoo artist named Fred Grossman, a.k.a. Coney Island Freddy, who sued the city for shuttering his business. Now, he lost, as the judge determined in that case, that a city can decide what is required for the good of public health. But then, when the case was sent to an appellate court, that judge killed it again, and then remarked, quote, The decoration, so-called, of the human body by tattoo designs is... In our culture, a barbaric survivor, often associated with a morbid or abnormal personality. But there's another larger force at play here, and of course it has to do with Robert Moses and New York Mayor Robert F. Wagner, and more specifically, the World's Fair of 1964, which opened in April of that year at Flushing Meadows Corona Park in Queens. Now, to make the city more inviting for thousands of visitors to make New York in the early 1960s a more wholesome place, the city began cracking down on several venues of supposed vice and immoral activity. As we mentioned in our Sip In at Julius podcast from last year, gay bars were heavily targeted for closure during this time, as were strip clubs and illicit theaters and adult bookstores in Times Square. The same year as the ban on tattoo parlors, 1961, the city also attempted to throw out the folk musicians in Washington Square. Now, the beatniks were able to rise up and bring the beat back to the square in that case, but the tattoo parlor owners were not so lucky. And so it was technically impossible to get a tattoo in New York, unless you were a racehorse or a valuable dog, until 1997, when the ban was finally lifted. Of course, obviously, people did get tattoos. Many parlors, if they could afford it, moved to neighboring towns on the outskirts of New York City. And of course, there were many, many tattoo parlors operating underground in the shadows. And after all, in 1970s, 1980s New York, it was pretty easy to operate all manner of businesses from the shadows. Some great names worked in the city, actually, during this period. And from that vantage, you know, going underground, tattooing became even more advanced and even more inclusive of the roots of tattooing art itself. By the mid-1990s, that dangerous reputation had transformed into an edgy and cool one, with mainstream music artists and movie celebrities sporting tattoos. 
it just seemed weird that New York had this ban by the mid-1990s. And so it was finally lifted in 1997 by Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Quote, pursuant to health code section 181.15, operation of a tattoo establishment in New York City is illegal. However, such establishments do currently operate in the city without regulations. There has not been a single documented case of hepatitis B in New York City transmitted by tattooing in almost 40 years since the ban was enacted. And thus a new era began. Tattooing today, of course, no longer remains in the shadows, although it's not like too mainstream. I don't know if there's a tattooing parlor at Macy's, for instance. According to a recent Harris poll, one in five Americans have at least one tattoo. And that number is rapidly growing with a larger percentage of those under the age of 40, men and women, wearing at least one tattoo or maybe an entire body's worth of tattoos. In New York City today, there are over 300 tattoo shops that you can visit. Now, one that you may find interesting once we're all out of this and things are back open and we're hopefully all back to a certain kind of normalcy, one that you may find interesting to visit, if you like this podcast, is a place called Daredevil Tattoo on Division Street in the Lower East Side, which also serves as a museum of tattooing. This collection comes from the co-owner... Uh, His name is Brad Fink. His personal collection of antique tattoo memorabilia here. So it's really, it's like stretches the gamut of tattooing history. It's a wonderful collection. And we're particular fans of Daredevil Tattoo as it is literally located across the street from the tenement building where Tom and I first started the Bowery Boys podcast back in 2007. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for photos related to this podcast and images related to all of our recent podcasts, actually. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. A big thank you to our patrons on Patreon.com for your continued support of the show. We've got an exclusive show for you guys this week. Our episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club featuring the film The Muppets Take Manhattan. And we've also recently just done one a a couple months ago, I think, on the movie The Warriors. There's lots of tattoos in The Warriors. So please check that one out as well. Uh, And in terms of our patrons, I just want to give a very special welcome and thank you to Todd H. and Matthew W. from Manhattan, Kara P. from Brooklyn, Jennifer A. from New Jersey, Richard K. from Delaware, Diana Maria A. from Georgia, and additional patrons Jake V., Laura K, Sandra H, and Nadia B. We are truly grateful for your support. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the show. I'll be back on Friday with an all-new episode. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right. 
a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.